I'm Alex Mosed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. Uh, on today's show, we're going to start off with a fun topic. It is techie. Maybe there's a platform dynamic here. I don't know. It's a little too early to tell. And that is space. Uh, put in short, space is pretty awesome. Elon Musk is pretty awesome. And uh, recently, Elon just put up another 60 Starlink satellites. Here, let's check this video out. Starlink deploy confirmed. And now you can see on screen, these satellites are slowly separating from the second stage. So I'd say that's pretty awesome. They now have over 800 Starlink satellites are up in orbit, which is uh, pretty impressive. That is still a fraction of the total number of satellites needed for global coverage, but it's enough to begin providing services uh, in some regions like the Northwest of the United States. Um, and that is where now Microsoft has announced a partnership with SpaceX to connect the Azure cloud to, um, to the Starlink satellite internet. I mean, it's so cool. It's, I mean, it's so cool. This is, you know, this is happening. It's real. Uh, they can service the Northwest U.S. Now, um, there's a really cool, you know, you're like, oh, well, what does this mean? So check this out. This is a remote uh, Microsoft Azure little data center. You know, this is like a little container. You just drop this thing. This is a remote area. Let's say there's no readily available kind of internet infrastructure. Um, Boom, they can use Starlink to to back up this data center and get that connectivity going. So, I mean, that's just one example. There's other examples here about, um, they call this the Azure Modular Data Center. But there's other examples about where this kind of Microsoft collaboration could take, could take SpaceX and Microsoft. Um, but it is very cool. I think this is kind of the dawn of a new era that we're seeing this private-public partnership um, as we explore space, that's the other news here, which is pretty cool, which is eight nations have signed the Artemis Accords for moon exploration uh, and beyond. So um, the U.S. has led this. There are um, eight nations, Australia, Canada, Japan, Luxembourg, Italy, the United Kingdom and the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, um, are participating in the Artemis program of crude lunar exploration. Artemis aims to land two astronauts uh, near the lunar South Pole by 2024. That's basically in three years. And establish a sustained human presence on and around the moon by the end of the decade. Um, and again, you know, there, there are a lot of initiatives here to try to monetize the moon, mine the moon. Uh, there's a lot of... Um, you know, minerals and uh, um, just raw materials on the moon and asteroids that are easy to kind of, I guess, easier to launch from the moon, grapple onto the asteroid, kind of like that movie Armageddon. But instead of the world being blown up by the asteroid, we want to mine the asteroid uh, and then sell that stuff <laughs> back on Earth. That's the idea. Um, some of these asteroids apparently have like hundred trillion dollars or some crazy amount of, of value of like gold and other rare minerals traveling on them. So it's awesome. 
Now, the other cool part about this is, you know, we've spoken about how SpaceX, Starlink, and the US DOD have already been collaborating for a couple of years now. They did that test um, down to one of those, you know, kind of like the those comms planes, right? Like the, you know, the planes that have all the the communication equipment, the radar equipment. So they're already getting that going. But again, you know, this article is saying, right, 800 Starlink satellites, not enough for a global network. Okay. Um, but again, the single biggest vulnerability of these uh, communist totalitarian regimes is their firewall on knowledge and internet and their abuse of tech monopolies, uh, China being the best at this, their abuse of tech monopolies to enforce their political will um, on their people. And, uh, you know, there's all kinds of articles now about just uh, Hong Kong suicide rates going through the roof. It's so sad to see, um, you know, beyond the acceleration from COVID and lockdowns, but beyond what is kind of a normal increase in suicides because of COVID, Hong Kong is just beating is off the charts. Um, oh, because now, you know, they are now just a, a much greater step under the control of, of the CCP. Very unfortunate. Um, but anyway. The single greatest silver bullet to pierce that veil would be something like Starlink. And now if you can provide a global network of internet via satellites and you just need um, these receivers, which are, you know, are, are, I guess, pretty inexpensive um, and, and you, know, you need some hardware on the ground to receive the connection from the satellite. But assuming you have that, these aren't that big, these aren't that expensive. I think they're, you know, in the tune of like three figures, like hundreds of dollars um, and pretty portable, then, yeah, I mean, you could now try to pierce uh, this veil of the tech firewall, the tech great wall um, that China has created and has now been exporting to all of their other totalitarian friends. Um, piercing that veil will be um, such a valuable mechanism to just promote you know, freedom and, and, and knowledge and, and all these kinds of things that um, America and other, you know, companies similar to us stand for. So, yeah, space is great. Love space. Okay, next topic. This is uh, first financings. So, we can go to it. First financings. Okay. Uh, first financings are down. What are first financings? We've actually covered for the past like four or five years, you've seen total volume of VC investment going into startups going up and you've seen first financings going down. Um, first financings are that first institutional round into a startup, right? Um, so these are really like seed series A stage startups. How many of these first financings are happening? And what we're seeing is that trend is continuing. First financings are declining. And they have been declining for some time. In this article, first financing share of total USVC deal value continues to shrink in 2020. First time equity investments in startups continue to downward trajectory this year with the capital uh, in Q3 representing 5.5%. So this actually is, is actually looking at total capital going into first financings, not just the quantity. Quantity of deal financings for the past five years has been declining. Uh, this is saying that first financings are equivalent to 5.5% of the total US VC investment deal value. And, and that is down from 5.7% in Q2. And meanwhile, 
um, follow-on financings have actually been continuing to increase. So you can kind of see this chart here. This chart's looking at total volume. Um, if we look at other stats around number of first financings, you know that chart is also going down. But you're also now seeing the total value of first financings also going down. Um, this is not a trend that was started by COVID. This is a trend which has been uh, accelerated by COVID and exacerbated by COVID. I think you know the broader reason why you see first financings declining, whether in quantity or in total amount, is more so a symptom of uh, tech monopolies. So you have, you know, when you look at these dominant platform businesses, um, when you look at the iPhone and Android 10, 12 years ago, when those things came out, what we've mapped out previously on the show is that those things very much so go hand in hand. For the first five years or so, post iPhone, iOS, Android launch, you had, you know, drastic increase year over year increase in in both number of first financings and total amount of dollars going into first financings. In the second half of, uh, of that decade, uh, basically the past five years, roughly, uh, you've had now a decline. And I think a lot of that is attributed to when you look at the boon of um, innovation that comes from dominant platform businesses, particularly development platforms, right? So, you know, they're providing that development platform infrastructure that you can then go build your app or your software-based business on top of that dev platform. iOS and Android are obviously some of the two, the two biggest dev platforms, um, but you also have Salesforce is doing a dev platform. Xbox is a dev platform, right? They're um, Red Hat that IBM bought, dev platform. Uh, you, you, there are a lot of dev platforms that are out there more than you would think um, beyond just iOS and Android. But again, um, iOS and Android having the the lion's share of growth, or I think being one of the biggest contributors to why first financings were going up for the first you know uh, five years or so after 2010, right? 2015 to 2020, they've been on the decline. Um, so when is the next development platform going to come onto the scene that's going to unlock you know, a huge boon of innovation and opportunity for tech entrepreneurs? Um, that'll yet to be seen. Uh, but we've covered this in the show, right? The different dev platforms that are out there that could try and, and be the next big wave uh, but these platforms are now so dominant and um, you don't want to compete in certain areas because no one's going to fund you if you're trying to compete directly against these monopolies. And, um, you know, there hasn't been a new just dominant dev platform come and rise to anywhere near the level of of where we've seen if you treat the Internet as a dev platform or if you treat, you know, mobile operating systems as a dev platform. What's the next environment, right? Uh, is it the home? Is it AR, VR? Is it the automobile, you know, drones? You know, there are a lot of these that are in motion, uh, but they just aren't there yet, I think, to really um, to 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 help counteract this trend. Um, the other note on this is. Just. Similarly, looking at this kind of platform dynamic which is in vogue these days, is tech's influence over markets eclipses dot-com bubble peak. So there's Wall Street Journal is this nice little graphic. There's the dot-com globe. And then this is the tech globe. I don't know. Whatever. Um, 
Companies that do everything from manufacturing phones. Okay, that's not platform. To operating social media platforms. That is platform. Now account for nearly 40% of the S&P 500. We've covered this in the past. Just um, how much FAMGA just dominates the S&P 500. um, Their command over the market. Basically, I think the takeaway from this is now they are um, back at the same level, if not greater, if you look at kind of tech overall, that's what the Wall Street Journal is like. It's not just platform, but it's everything that's tech. You know, you would have smartphone manufacturers in here. I, I would presume you'd have, you know, telecom companies in here as well, right? Um, but, but obviously, the, the, the huge driver of late are FAMGA and, and those related uh, platform stocks. If we take a look over at, at where Platt's at, year to date, 37%. This is as of the close yesterday. Uh, since inception, two Mays ago, 52, almost 53%. Uh, if you look at these, um, you know, they, 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 they uh, benchmark these returns. Um, this is ending September 30th. You've got year to date performance of 33%. Since inception, ending September 30th is 48%. We limited some of the foreign exposure in Platt. Uh, so there's a cap at, I think, around 10%. Uh, or Wisdom Tree limited the exposure around 10% now of foreign exposure. And really focused this more so there's about 50 companies or so in the index. Majority, large majority of which are in the U.S. FAMGA making up a big part. But the, but the ETF is not market cap weighted. Otherwise, it'd be five stocks that just control all of that. So it's a it's a different weighting. It's it's actually what they call uh, market and equal cap. So you 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 kind of take uh, you divide the two, um, and there's limits on how much one stock can can um, can comprise of the total basket. So there are limits on it. It's not um, as heavily weighted as other indices are towards. FAMGA stocks. Uh, but again, I mean, even today, you're just seeing, you're just seeing uh, the whole basket of platform stocks, just uh, even, even, the, even the kind of travel and hospitality stocks are rebounding very nicely. So these platform, these asset light businesses just continue this streak. Kind of every article after, you know, every other article now is just confirming the same trend. Um, and the question is, will it stop? right is 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 this going to end and if you just look at the natural course of the markets you know i think the answer is no um when we look at this battle of incumbents versus tech monopolies uh i think incumbents are making some progress they could be doing a lot more to better their case but hey um is it going to dethrone the tech monopolies no um where does regulation come in and and is that going to stop them um i think there's a lot of fervor right now over tech regulation and and as we've covered on the show parts of it rightly so but is tech regulation going to stop this I, I i also don't think so uh and here is why let's look at section 230 Section 230 is the thing that is in vogue these days. Uh, that is going to be the silver bullet, just like Starlink is going to be the silver bullet to China's uh, tech firewall. Um, will Section 230 be the silver bullet 
to tech dominance? And the answer is it depends, but the answer will probably be no. But let's look at this. What just came out recently, uh, let's see if I can zoom in on this. More trouble ahead for Section 230, this time from SCOTUS. This is Supreme Court. A new 10-page statement from Clarence Thomas says courts have set questionable precedent around 230 and suggests SCOTUS, Supreme Court, should consider narrowing the scope of immunity granted to tech platforms. Then on the other side of this, you have uh, some of these ultra-conservative social networks, this one, Gab, saying, actually, we don't want you to take any regulation on 230. And... and um, you know, this is our differentiator, actually, because because Gab is saying, well, we don't we refuse to censor legal speech. Section 230 has allowed big tech to deplatform us. We have every reason to hate Section 230, but we want you to keep 230 exactly the way it is. Section 230 helps the little guy. We seek to protect free speech on the Internet. Section 230 is the only thing that stands between us and an avalanche of lawsuits from activist groups and foreign governments who don't like what our millions of users and readers have to say. Without Section 230, we couldn't stand up to these oppressive forces that want to eliminate free speech online. With Section 230, we can. This is the central premise of what we've talked about on the show uh, when it comes to not just 230, but tech legislation and regulation in general. There is no one-size-fits-all solution to this. The tech monopolies... Uh, I mean, literally are the size of many countries, <laughs> just each one of these things. You can't just do wholesale legislation uh, or regulation that and expect that to apply um, appropriately to all of these tech monopolies. And uh, GDPR is the perfect example of this. GDPR passed a law, which was which the impetus for that was to say, hey, tech monopolies are taking advantage of your data and selling your information. What happened with GDPR is they passed this law, which applied to not only tech monopolies, it applied to tech startups, and it applied to tr traditional businesses. And the problem with that is that the tech monopolies are able to best adapt to comply with the law. Not to mention they have lobbyists and they make sure that the lobbyists make sure they get certain language into the law. That's a whole other thing. But even when you pass a law, who is in the position to best comply with the law? The tech monopoly or the startup or the incumbents? It's the tech monopoly. The tech monopoly is in the best position to comply. They literally have thousands of engineers just sitting around waiting to do stuff. They got to give them things. They have infinite resources to best comply. So GDPR came down. Post-GDPR, Facebook and Google's share of digital advertising in Europe went up because all of their competitors had to invest in resources to comply with all these data and privacy laws. And Google and Facebook had the best data and the best tech and the best resources to comply with those laws. So all of the advertising dollars actually shifted more so to Google and Facebook. Uh, GDPR hurt. Google and Facebook's competition. It helped Google and Facebook. The same thing will happen if you just eliminate 230 tomorrow. FAMGA tech monopoly competition will be screwed. They'll be sued just like this company is, this startup is saying. They'll have to divert resources to, you know, um, build out better regulation or moderation of content 
to scrub infringing content, to deal with lawsuits that, oh, by the way, the tech monopolies will fund those lawsuits through their own little, you know, nonprofit third parties that, oh, here's a hundred million dollars. Go sue all of our competitors for infringing content. Oh, wonderful. Um, the tech startups that are competing with the tech monopolies and the enterprises that are just trying to do anything, the enterprises will just have to shut down trying to innovate altogether. Right, their lawyers, their legal, just say, "Nope, can't do this. Can't touch this. We're going to get sued in two seconds." Nope, not doing it. So that screws the enterprises. The tech startups will be screwed because they don't have the resources to to comply or fight this legally that the tech monopolies do. Tech monopolies will win if you get rid of Section Two Thirty. What needs to happen is bespoke regulation of each tech monopoly, and there is meat to this Two Thirty argument. Um, I think we're going to have one of the. You know, uh, I've covered him before on the show. Uh, one of the guys that's in the social theory documentary come on in a couple of weeks and and talk about this. But you know, the argument for weakening two thirty is that two thirty is that these tech monopolies are channeling content that you know triggers you that gets the highest engagement out of its users. And in that sense, tech monopolies are fueling the the fake news. Right? They are the ones that. That say, oh, let me take this article, let me send it to Alex, because I know he's going to click it and share it with five people. And they understand very intimately uh, what triggers people, what gets engagement, and very often what gets engagement is stuff that you don't agree with. Let me send that stuff to Alex. And a lot of that is fake news. Um, and so you have this vicious, vicious cycle repeat itself. So, you know, but 230 is saying, well, hey, Facebook, hey, Google, hey, hey, tech monopolies. Uh, if you're now considered a publisher and you're peddling fake news, you're liable for peddling fake news. Okay. Um, the problem is that if they're liable and you get rid of 230, every startup is liable, right? And every incumbent is liable. And so you, you hamper any competitor's ability to innovate. And now you actually just cement the tech monopoly's position as the monopoly. And they'll invest a bunch of money and they'll comply with the law, but they'll actually be in a stronger position. So this 230 thing, it needs to be directed at tech monopolies. If you can say, hey, we're only going to weaken 230 for these specific companies or for companies that, that hit these levels of market dominance. Now you're on to something. Now, the other good thing that came out of this uh, House Judiciary Committee report is something we've talked a lot about on the show um, is that eMarketer and other data sources are just plain wrong with their stats. And this guy, Hal Singer, says here, uh, always thought something was fishy with eMarketer's estimate of, of Amazon's market share. Oh, we would agree, Hal. In any event, Amazon's market power over merchants could be proven to be... So this is, um, this is, so, uh, you know, and I've just, you got a lot of people on this thread that are disputing what eMarketer reports. We've covered this on the show a long time ago. Amazon has in all likelihood over 50% of online sales. That's this one thing. Not 40% as eMarketer puts it. Um, you go farther down and it's actually in the House Judiciary Report where they specifically actually call out eMarketer as saying eMarketer estimates that Amazon's market share is 38.7%, but um, they are including, for example, auto car sales in that stat, right? Auto car sales 
uh, as an e-commerce category, you know, it, it just completely throws off your your stats. Um, so we actually here's our little clip on it. E-marketer is wrong. When do we come out with this? July of last year, July of uh, 2019. So. Um, these are all ironically enough looking at uh, the consumer e-commerce sales in fact what you need to be looking is at the supplier the 3p market and in that market it's very clear amazon has over 70 percent market share of all 3p sales right i'm a third-party seller what marketplaces can i sell on amazon ebay walmart StockX, farfetch the real real um you know goat uh right like Put all those marketplaces together that allow third-party sellers to sell stuff, take out auto car sales, and calculate Amazon's share of that, and it's well over 70%. We've done it on the show many times. Um, that's actually the stat you should be looking at. And also in that 230 report, they found, or not in the 230 report, in the House Judiciary report, they found uh, an Amazon document that actually says, sellers are our customers. And when sellers are your customer, the red carpet is rolled out. The, uh, the antitrust precedent of the past 50 years applies. And you can win an argument saying that Amazon or Google or, or Facebook's a little bit tougher. But Amazon, Google, it's easy. Um, Apple, also easy to say, yeah, these are dominant platforms. And, um, you know, look at how much money their third-party producers are generating from the platform and what other alternative do they have, right? Look at um, Google, search, uh, Google search and their dominance over websites. Uh, look at Amazon over third-party sellers. Look at Apple over the money they're sending to app developers. Simple. Simple. Okay. Okay. 2.30. Last topic. A favorite on this show is talking about how bloated Netflix is. And bam, they just came out with their earnings and they missed. Um, they're missing on subscriber additions and earnings. And their stock is down over 5% at this point. They, uh, they got a buck 74 instead of the 214. So they missed by. 40 cents uh, on their earnings per share. Revenue was a little bit above where they expected it. They beat that by, uh, uh, what, 60, $60 million. And out of here, pop ups. Um, net subscriber additions 2.2 million versus 3.57 million. Mm. That's the thing everyone looks for. Um, in the same quarter last year, Netflix added 6.8 million subscribers. So you'd think to yourself, everyone's locked up, right? We saw Q1. We saw them have a huge beat Q1. Huge beat Q1. Look at this. See that? Boom. That's Q1. This, this guy, they had over 15 million subs. Q1. And then their second highest subscriber edition ever. 10 million subs Q2. Q3, 2.2 million. Hmm. There's a lot of competition. There's a lot of competition. You 
can't have this level of competition in a platform winner-take-all market where you have supply-side network effects. You just, you can't have it. It just doesn't work. But because this is a linear model, because we've said this is basically just uh, a tech movie studio, it's a linear business. Uh, There is no supply-side network effect. I think there is stuff that Netflix could or should be doing to generate a supply-side network effect, but for some reason, they're not doing it. Um, I think they could do it. It just doesn't seem to be in their strategy for some reason. Um, And they have positive free cash flow, but they're not making as many movies. And now they're saying for 2021, they expect uh, to... uh, have negative free cash flow again because then they're going to start making more movies you know they had to halt uh, a lot of their production so it said it, it said it expects to be slightly negative on free cash flow in q4 as production restarts so they freed up all this cash because they're not making any shows it's not because magically the business is great and again i think netflix like many businesses right like many of these high growth businesses the multiple is a derivative of of how much growth um, and, and, and margin and, and defensibility the business has. And the problem for Netflix is that its competitive environment and competitive landscape is much tougher than that of a dominant platform monopoly like YouTube. They're actually roughly the same size business. Uh, but strategically, are very different business models and have a very different competitive landscape. Meanwhile, Disney Plus, uh, Disney Plus, by the way, did you see um, the the new Mandalorian show is coming out right at the end of October. They have a lot of new, a uh, lot of the kind of annual subscribers are um, up for renewal, like beginning of November. So now, boom, October, end of October, they're dropping the new Mandalorian season. Who's going to cancel their Netflix, uh, their Disney Plus subscription uh, when you have new Mandalorian season that's out, right? Um, Disney Plus has over 60 million subscribers worldwide. And that is basically in a year since launching. Actually, that, no- that stat is from August of 2020. Um, so again, it just it's much harder to get that level of traction, even if you are a world famous movie content powerhouse in in a platform, a content platform model to compete against a YouTube versus competing against a Netflix. So Netflix could still have great growth, but will Netflix's multiple? We've we've looked we've looked at their PE multiple. Their multiple versus Disney, and basically it's way higher. And said, "Okay, well, do you think this is going to stand up?" And I don't think it's going to stand up um, as over the long term as the competition just con- you know continues to heat up. Now you got um, you know uh, you got Time Warner and, and HBO Max in the race. You got Peacock in the race. I mean, it, these services just launched this year. Disney Plus is barely a year old. These these guys aren't these guys. I mean, by the incumbent competitors, they're not just going to shutter these services. They're investing in these things over the long haul. These are massive companies: Comcast, Time Warner, AT and T. I mean, oh, and not to mention you have Apple and Amazon and 
Google, I think Walmart is doing right. Like it, there's just so much competition in this space. I think it's just hard to command the kind of premiums that Netflix has over the long term. So we'll continue to track it. Netflix is down. That's it for us today on Winner Take All. Thanks for joining us, and I'll talk to you soon. Oh, last thing before we end is we are about to cross uh, the 2,000 subscriber threshold. So I want to thank everyone for um, for being a subscriber, for uh, for engaging, for commenting, um, and sharing this with your friends. You know, this show is really about um, building conversation and uh and helping to get some of these ideas out there and thoughts that you know frankly just aren't being discussed uh elsewhere in the kind of techosphere so um it's been a great journey so far and we continue to have uh really great engagement and really good feedback from everyone so thank you for that and uh we'll keep it going